Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast. This is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of FinTech Nexus. I've been doing these shows since 2013, which makes this the longest-running one-on-one interview show in all of FinTech. Thank you for joining me on this journey. If you like this podcast, you should check out our sister shows, Pitch It, the FinTech Startups Podcast with Todd Anderson, and FinTech Coffee Break with Isabel Castro. Or you can listen to everything we produce by subscribing to the FinTech Nexus podcast channel. This episode is brought to you in partnership with our friends from This Week in FinTech. This Week in FinTech hosts the largest online community of FinTech enthusiasts, with over 6,000 members meeting, collaborating, and sharing ideas together in real time. Check out www.thisweekinfintech.com to sign up for their newsletter delivered fresh weekly to 60,000 readers and keep up on the latest fintech news and events. Or come meet the community at one of their global fintech happy hours coming to a city near you soon. Again, that's www.thisweekinfintech.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Brad Stroh, He is the co-CEO and co-founder of Achieve, formerly known as Freedom Financial. So I wanted to get Brad on the show because I think they have a really interesting story, Achieve. They are really one of the pioneers in the fintech space, started in 2002. That was like five years before Lending Club. And they have carved out a, a real solid niche for themselves and they serve a variety of different consumers focused primarily on those that have experienced financial hardship that are kind of outside of the the mainstream prime consumer. And, you know, we talk about what is the challenges these consumers have, how Achieve helps them with the different uh, products that they offer. We talk about their their capital markets approach and uh, his uh, vision for the future. It was a fascinating discussion. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. Thanks, Peter. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. So your career has been spent, the majority of it has been spent uh, in this one company. So what I'd like to do to start off with is to go back 20 plus years before you you founded Achieve, or what became Achieve. Tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do there and the, the thought process involved in the founding of the company. It is funny. This is the vast majority of my career, you know, 20 plus years with Andrew running what's now Achieve. If I go back to the, the kind of the founding story in the early 2000s, both Andrew and I had come from the investing venture capital, private equity world. We met at Stanford Business School. We were really committed to, to being entrepreneurs, to starting a business. And a few things about what's evolved into Achieve, kind of there were foundational elements that that have woven into our DNA even today. But the founding story really combines strategic thinking, a lot of luck, and combining some of our kind of personal values and and why we're such a mission-driven business all the way to today. At Stanford Business School, you know, coming out of private equity, we were pretty adept at mapping industries, pattern recognition, economic models, identifying large TAMs, looking at um, where we thought there were underserved segments of categories of markets. We really got committed quickly to consumer finance as a massive industry 
you know, back then I think it was 13 trillion, fast forward to today, you know, 17 trillion of consumer debt. And we just fundamentally thought there were aspects of a huge market that were really inefficient, broken. And now combining to our, our personal values and, and why we are such a mission-driven business, we saw this great opportunity to combine creating a valuable big business in a massive market with fundamentally changing people's lives who were underserved, didn't have, adv- have advocates, who were struggling and striving, and um, that we thought we could create a mission-driven business around. Candidly, in those early days, we didn't know what that would be. And before, this is O2. This is right. before lean startup methodology was a hot thing before the concept of an mvp was even a concept we bootstrapped a business from scratch by testing learning putting ads out online in the early days of google some of our our good friends from business school were some of the top people at google back then and building data models before that was a cool thing of learning what are the segments of consumers who are coming to us what do they look like what are their problem statements and it clustered pretty quickly peter into the super prime consumer who qualifies for conforming products, whether that's a conforming mortgage or student loans or or personal loans or credit cards, pretty well served and effectively served. There's still a lot of inefficiency in our minds all the way to today in in some of those markets. The non-conforming consumer, whether that's FICO impaired, whether that's high DTI, whether that's high LTV, whether that's someone who's been through a divorce or had a medical hardship, they were and still to this day largely are kicked out of the traditional financial services market. So I'd say that was kind of a core opportunity that we identified. It's just the size, the scale, and how underserved those consumers were and the level of stress and distress that they had. And I, I can I can go through a couple just case studies of that. I'd say combined with the a couple light bulbs went off for us were back then everyone from Stanford Business School wanted to go into venture which was our background, and we were looking to get out, ironically. They wanted to go into private equity hedge funds. Nobody in O2 wanted to start a company, and no one from Stanford Business School, Harvard Business School, was going after what broadly is you know, the underserved consumer finance industry. Right. To us, that just looked like what a massive market with a great opportunity that connects to our personal values that we think we can build a, a big, valuable, impactful business that makes a meaningful dent on the universe in consumer finance. And it's just fundamentally is not attracting the best and the brightest people in the world. Now, you've been had a front row seat to the growth of fintech and the excitement of the influx of talent and dollars that did not exist back in that window of right. time. So right. we just saw this great opportunity. I'd say one other variable is coming from venture and technology, and I had had been a, a venture and, and private equity investor, primarily in technology, you know, from 95 to 2000, which was a unique window of time. I did see the role of technology and data to disrupt legacy industries, to improve the consumer experience, and really to massively accelerate innovation, and then the role of, of technology that can can really disrupt big, sleepy industries. Honestly, those things came together and Andrew and I just thought, this is it. We put up some cool search ads. We did for free a bunch of free consultations with consumers. Early on, we thought it was going to be more of a data play where we'd educate consumers around the information asymmetry that exists between the lenders or collection agencies or the banks and the individual consumer. It quickly turned into identifying the opportunity to productize, helping consumers deal with their most pressing problems around debt. And that was the early founding story. Okay, that's fascinating. So what's been interesting is that you know you've started this in 2002. Yep. And that, you know, that was before fintech was a thing and 
you know, before even the pioneers of the online lending space you know, getting going, you've had a front row seat as well to seeing, you know, there was Prosper and Lending Club that came a few years after you. But I'm curious, like, was this was this an online business from the get-go? You've seen the the huge growth, like a decade ago, there was a monstrous uh, growth in uh, in online lending. Was this always going to be an online business? What a great question that connects all the way to what I think is one of our core competencies today is no, it was not digital first, largely because we didn't have the luxury of, of raising $80 million in <laughs> our company with a CTO and a chief data officer and a bunch of expensive VPs who bring in a digital first approach. We, in a bootstrapped manner, brought what I would say is a human touch, which all the way to today is a 3,000 person company. We still are very human centric, human touch centric that now have layered on digital capabilities and personalization and, and more of a data driven approach. Those early days, we personally were connecting with consumers, building trust and advocacy for them and for their debt resolution plan or for their path forward, personal loans, specialty loans, or to get them on the path to, to the brighter financial future that we saw. It really did start with a human touch, which I think is the harder, more complex problem to solve. And we started there first. I'd also say from the early days, Peter, we always thought of ourselves as a consumer finance business, meaning consumer first, financial services driven. We never thought purely as when fintech came in, which we can still have great debates around the level of tech versus fin mm -hmm. in you know some of those early fintech entrants. We recognize some great opportunities and continue to be an underserved large TAM, but I do think we recognized the responsible credit approach to lending, the consumer-centric, consumer-first approach to solving problems that was missing from some of the early entrants in fintech, meaning we were human first, digital second. Right. Gotcha. Interesting. So then... I want to go through the the core product suite, if you will, and I want to um, just go through each component. You can let me know if there's something I'm missing here, but you want to start off in personal loans. I feel like that's something, obviously, a lot of competition there in the personal loan space today. What are your loan terms and what is a differentiator for you in that business? Yeah, a couple of things on the achieve personal loan side of the business that I think were differentiators. I'd say first is outside of that individual product category, Peter, is the platform and the multi-product suitability-based uh, enrollment for consumers, where we're really trying to identify right product, right fit for the consumer. To us, that lets us personalize the individual product for the consumer, whether it's a home loan, whether it's a personal loan, whether it's a debt resolution program, whether it's a DIY debt plan for a consumer that they execute themselves. That makes the personal loan category and our product differentiated because we don't have one hammer seeing everything as a nail. We've got personalization for every consumer. What that means for the PL side is at suitability-based underwriting, we can make the right credit decision for the right consumer. That's, that's first and foremost. For us, that turns into better loan performance. We continue to be very successful with our, our loan performance and our long-term investors. We have our own credit hedge fund where we buy back our loans. We were one of the first to have ever done that where we proved that we want to own our loans and we believe in the credit performance of the consumers that we're underwriting. That was very innovative and differentiated early on. It really um, wove into the DNA of our company, responsible lending, responsible pricing, responsible credit decisions. 
The other really big one is that back to the human touch that started with the founding story is we try to reach out and have a phone call and a personal contact with every borrower hmm. so that we understand their situation. We build understanding and trust. We connect them to our servicing platform, to dashboards, to tools and digital experiences you know, that help empower them. But we fundamentally try to build a relationship with them, meaning if anything changes, if their financial situation changes, they know there's a human being and a personal company behind that loan that's willing to stand by them and be flexible and respond to their their changing needs, which allows our credit performance to be better. We also introduced in terms of, of specifics around the PL category, we were the first people to do, we pay off their debts directly with direct pay, complex, build our own tech stack and payments platform. We give them rate reductions for a bunch of specific nuances that we've identified in FICO and non-FICO based lending that I think are innovative, resulting in a better consumer experience and then ultimately better credit performance for our borrowers. Right, right. Interesting. So then I also noticed you do home equity loans and I mean, it's a little bit away from sort of the core underserved population, I would imagine, but tell us a little bit about that product. It's going to connect a lot to the evolution of Achieve, which is consumer-driven insights that allows us to expand products and services to meet the needs of the consumer, not starting with technology or core hypothesis and then trying to overlay it to a consumer category. The catalyst for that, which we've been in for several years and we're really excited about the growth of that product, is we were seeing a tremendous volume of applicants for personal loans and for debt consolidation services where it's a consumer that just fell outside of a conforming bucket or they didn't want to touch their first. Now that TAM has grown massively, you know, since the, the Fed, you know, rate uh, increases in the past year. But they had relatively low LTVs from our credit team. We thought we could effectively credit underwrite those people to give them better terms, whether the rate or a much lower monthly payment. Our average home equity loan borrower, it's a $65,000 loan. 75% of the proceeds are typically debt consolidation. On average, we are saving them $800 a month in monthly payment. So significantly financial stress relieving for that product. But it came out of the insight that a bunch of these consumers are applying for the wrong product. Why don't we introduce that product to this TAM and identify then back to suitability based underwriting and standards, a better product for the right fit for that consumer that helps meet them and path them on the way to paying off their debts. It is actually that category. So non-super prime home equity loan borrowers is pretty underserved, Peter, going mm -hmm. all the way back to the fallout from the GFC that figure is a great entrant and a, a worthy competitor. There's some new entrants coming in now from the PL and the mortgage space as those right. industries are getting disrupted. But I do think we've got differentiation there as well, going back to kind of the core DNA of our business. Right. Interesting. So I also want to talk about debt relief. I, I think I read somewhere the Freedom Debt Relief was the biggest debt relief company in the country. And uh, I'd love to sort of talk about how that process works and maybe just explain what you're doing there. So that's achieved debt resolution. And, and that's the evolution of the Freedom Debt Relief product is that was one of our first products we launched in the early days when we recognized and kind of pivoted into that distressed consumer. Since inception, we've enrolled over 16 billion in consumers in debt into that product. On average, we're saving them about half of what they owe. That's a distressed consumer, say 560, 570 FICO. Typically, the root cause of the financial distress is divorce, medical hardship, or loss of income. 
when someone falls outside of the the conveyor belt of consumer finance where they struggle they can't sustain 30,000 of unsecured debt at that point they're unlendable creditors don't really know how to deal with them outside of running them through the collection mill and we've been a leader in that space from the start of helping mm -hmm. identify that pocket of consumers get them onto a monthly payment that they can afford so they can save up funds which then go towards settlements and resolutions on those debts typically over a three to five year period of time at which point you see their financial rehabilitation typically they're over that financial hardship at some point during that that debt resolution program for creditors which we consider as a as a key constituent and partner of ours is it allows them to recover with more visibility higher dollar amounts which right. from an roi calculus for the original issuer or their collection agent proxy much more efficiency lower cost you know higher recovery for a consumer, they have an advocate that they're not on their own trying to manage 11 individual accounts. They have someone who advocates on their behalf to manage through one payment, the payoff of all of those debts through reduced balance settlements, a product that we're really proud of and we've been a leader from the start. Right. So then just so I'm clear, then you like you will sort of consolidate all of the debts, like they might have 10, 11 debts um, or whatever, and you bring them all together into one payment and then you go out and negotiate one-on-one -on -one with all of the different sort of companies that they owe money to? Is that is that how it works? That's largely correct. The, the simplified notion is you give them a payment that they can afford into their own special purpose bank account. They've saved those funds up and then we go and we negotiate settlements with all those counterparties. Could right. be the original issuer, could be a collection agency, could be a purchase pool collections agency as well. Going back to sort of the founding you know, DNA of our business, what we really also recognized was we could reverse engineer with data science and models the collection models for all the issuers and then identify where the consumer could never do this at scale just how incredibly increasing returns to scale of data were on this side of the business where you now recognize for every consumer category for every geo and every creditor what is the optimal point to settle on the efficient curve for each of those consumers. You bring the power of that aggregated data to every individual consumer, they benefit by being a part of that large ecosystem. You fast forward to today, we're so large and have built such great trust and relationships. A lot of the settlements are not individual negotiations at this point. There's a lot of big bulk data exchanges where we can exchange with the creditors themselves, make their collection processes a lot more efficient allowing them to get transparency to the consumer, typically put their mind at ease that they're going to get repayment over a period of time, and then allow us to negotiate settlements with their counterparties. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, another piece is two, not one, but two consumer apps on the App Store, the Good App, G-O-O-D, all in capitals, and then the Molo app, M-O-L-O. -O. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. Yeah, we like our acronyms, obviously. <laughs> To us, from the highest level, we recognize that um, we are the leader in you know, consumer digital finance across helping people get out of debt. We wanted to have free and freemium services available to consumers, and we wanted to have the leverage the power of all of the data we've had over 20 years to identify consumers and help them get on the path to better financial futures. Good is achieve get out of debt. That is that acronym. Fundamentally, it's helping a consumer pull credit, identify their creditors, typically educate them of, are you aware that your $22,000 of credit card debt where you're paying 
on average 27% APRs and you're only making minimum payments, that's going to cost you $112,000 over the next 17 years to repay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Let's look at your free cash flow and help you identify better self-serve ways on your own to repay that debt. Typically starting with an avalanche approach is let's try to allocate most of your cash flow as possible to your highest APR debt down until you've totally paid your debts off. That's right. the good one. Molo is a really inspired uh, view, kind of modern view of budgeting. And that's Molo is money left over. And that starts first and foremost, a little bit less for the distressed debt focused consumer, more towards how do I optimize my cash flow? And then how do I set up goals and a life plan and a financial plan? And then help me identify the best way to allocate that free cash flow, whether it's to pay off debt, which is a, a meaningful subset of the consumers, or to save up for college, retirement, buy my dream home, buy a second home, whatever their personal goals are. Now you're connecting a life plan and a financial journey with their monthly cash flow and helping them really simplify the process of coming up with a plan. In both situations, Peter, we just recognized from our core platform, behavioral irrationalities are high in consumer finance. Complexity is perceived high. How can we simplify this and help consumers just make better financial decisions, whether it's cash flow or debt pay down? Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And finally, um, there is bills.com, which I also believe is part of the Achieve family. And that's bills with an S, not bill.com, bills.com. How does that fit in? Yeah, so bills has always been a, a resource of tools, articles, content that lives outside of the kind of the core ecosystem, but attaches to our core DNA of helping empower consumers to make better financial decisions, reviews, ratings, content tools, all free services to consumers. Gotcha. Okay. So then tell us about the rebrand. You you were Freedom Financial for a long time. And I was tooling around online. I see that the Freedom brand is still around. So tell us a little bit about the, the reasoning um, behind the rebrand and sort of where is everything moving over to achieve or how how sort of the Freedom brand still fits in? Super proud of the Freedom brand and the Freedom story. If I go back to 02 and all the way back to the founding of the business, we got a lot of things right. Core values, market opportunity, the product expansion. One thing that I was incredibly naive around was the value of a brand in the marketplace and a cohesive brand over time. We evolved our products and the launch of our products, consumer first and product centric. The achieve pivot is we want to have to be a branded house with all of our products under one branded house, both for a unified view of the consumer, but also to show up more coherently to the consumers that we serve so we can path them through our products under one branded house more effectively. Yes, Peter, everything is going to be achievified and on the achieve brand. We're in the middle of that process right now. We waited way too long to, to, to really lean into brand and honestly to do, to tell our story more effectively. We're really excited about it. The team and, and, you know, 3000 strong employees are excited to all wear the same t-shirt, have the same business card. And I think it's more coherent for the, the consumers that we serve to show up more effectively as one brand. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So I want to step back for a second and talk about sort of the core customer that you deal with. Can you maybe, Describe who they are and and how they fall into debt, oftentimes in an unmanageable debt burden. How does this happen in the first place? Yeah, so we call our broad kind of 105 million underserved, you know, American households, um, the struggling and striving population. The reality is uh, most of the of the consistent theme is they're just struggling under the burden of the weight of a lot of debt. 
really the distinction between struggling versus striving falls into their ability to repay and then the amount of options they have available to them. On the debt resolution side, it's surprisingly affluent consumer, typically 49 years old, household income close to $70,000, on average dealing with $25,000 of credit card debt, meaningful chunk, almost half own their own home, the cost of living that is the burden that kind of catalyzes the problem. And then the debt resolution consumer, they typically get spun out of and out of the the financial services system and the inability to make payment because of medical hardship, divorce, loss of income, or some other personal hardship, at which point they can't keep up with their monthly payments and they fall off of the, the financial conveyor belt. The personal loan consumer looks more prime. So around a 700 FICO, dealing with a under the weight of a lot of credit card debt typically twenty five to thirty thousand dollars of credit card debt but they they don't have an affordability problem they just have a cost of debt problem and so they're trying to enroll in a product that lowers the cost of debt repayment and they don't struggle with the payment shock the debt resolution consumer has typically then that's a three to five year duration loan obviously unsecured on a personal loan product the majority of those consumers are debt console by the way for all of the for all of the that SoFi, Lending Club, Prosper, all of us who play in that space. Mm-hmm. The home loan consumer is falls a little bit in between. So, so definitionally achieve home loans. The HELOC product is a homeowner, 100%, typically affluent, over 100K of income, but struggling under the weight of a lot of credit card debt or debt, auto, student loan, mortgage. And they are just trying to find a more efficient way to pay off their debt. And frequently they are looking for payment relief. I think I mentioned earlier on average that consumer is saving $800 a month post debt consolidation into a HELOC. That product is exploding now because the lack of willingness rationally from the American, you know, homeowner to touch their first. If, if you right. have a 2.9 or three in this market, it makes no sense to refi your first into a seven or a, you know, six and a half percent first. And so in which case they're looking for personal loans, which are more expensive, or a HELOC, which is a lower cost way to consolidate debt. Right. I'm going to say the root cause, by the way, though, Peter, for all three products is inflation, cost of living, healthcare, higher education, rent, homeownership, groceries, eggs. When inflation continues to outpace real wages, that, that affordability gap gets filled by the average American household with debt. The credit card is a highly inefficient financial instrument to finance short-term debt problems. The problem is it escalates, and now you see the compounding of debt problems on top of it. And then, you know, our mission is to help these people solve these complex debt problems and get back to, you know, a brighter financial future. Whether that is an affordable product, whether that is in a, a secured loan product with real payment relief, or for the distressed population in a, a debt resolution product. So then have you seen increased demand? Because obviously inflation wasn't a problem for a long, long time. And then the last 18 months, it's become more of a problem. So have you have you seen more demand, particularly maybe at the lower end of the spectrum, um, credit quality-wise, because of inflation? Yes. Peak demand for our products right now. D- due to affordability gap, record debt. I mean, the trillion of credit card debt. You've got you know 17 trillion of, of consumer debt. At the same time that rates have risen so much, the affordability of that debt is at the lowest it's been in our lifetime. Credit card interest rates are the highest they've been in recorded history on top of record debt, on top of record inflation, uh, you know, in the past several decades. 
So yes, demand is high. I would say this though, this is not just a distressed low income, you know, American household consumer issue. At some point, almost every American family who lives in the bottom 90% of wealth and income goes through some period of financial distress that can turn into financial trauma or just financial stress, whether they, again, medical loss of income, divorce, some external factor hits you. And unless you have a family member, a friend, someone that's willing to help support you through that period of stress, you really do need help. And again, the financial services industry is not structured to adapt and to provide exemptions to consumers and exceptions to meet their personalized needs. We've always filled that gap. Demand has always been high. It really is at peak demand right now as stress on the U.S. consumers higher than we've ever seen. Right, right. What's your view on financial literacy and the sort of, uh, you talked about some of the educational type content that you put out there. You know, can we kind of educate ourselves into being more financially healthy? I think behavioral, you know, changes are one. I think education is certainly a foundation element that's missing. We've lobbied very hard in the state of Arizona. and We're really proud to have helped legislature in Arizona pass a bill that says you must have basic financial literacy to graduate high school. We should have that at the federal level. Right. You show up the first day of college and you get a Capital One card and a T-shirt and you're ill-equipped to understand FICO scores, LTV, DTI, yield spread premium. These are complex things and you have some of the smartest minds in the world focused on getting people into debt. And they on their own are trying to self-manage that without the tools of the capability, unless they had a mentor, a parent, a neighbor, or some advocate that really helped them manage through that. So that is a foundational gap in many Americans of just dealing with financial decisions, which are complex right, and in a rational way. So yeah, that's one. The other is, I just don't think that the way that a lot of banks and conforming financial products frequently because of government intervention, where they set conforming loan limits for mortgages, they set definitions of student loan borrowing rates. And if you don't fit that box, and people don't help educate you of where you are on that right on the edge or or well outside and how to get yourself into the healthiest financial situation. We're just not constructed as a, as a financial ecosystem to help lift those people up. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So I want to talk about capital markets for a second. And, you know, we did actually have Joe Toms on our podcast here about five years ago when he started working with you guys on the capital markets side. And, and I'll link to that. I'll link to that episode in the show notes, but what I'm curious about is, I know you're active in the securitization markets. You've remained active when many of your competitors have kind of pulled back a little bit. But tell us a little bit about your approach to capital markets and how you're funding these loans. So a couple of things. We remain very active in securitization markets. And I'd go back to the resiliency of our portfolio, back to our credit underwriting, unique insights and performance of our loans versus some other people and who maybe chased volume or growth at the expense of you know, loan portfolio resilience. I think we've done 15 securitizations, several billion dollars of issuances in terms of sources of capital. We have whole loan buyers. We have our own credit hedge fund. Again, I think I stated earlier where we're buying back a lot of our the loans that we originate. We've got a pretty diverse set of warehouse lines across several partners or Silicon Valley Bank was one of them. We're happy to have stability in that ecosystem as well. Mm-hmm. But what we try to do is have redundancy, never have a single point of failure, and to remain active in several of the, the kind of capital markets outlets for on the lending side. 
Okay, so then last question. You've got a you know one of the largest um, you know lending operations in all of fintech. I'd love to kind of get your sense on the vision where like you've been at this for more than 20 years. What's your vision for the future? Where are you taking this? I'd say just honestly, we're just getting started 20 years in. I think the original vision, it was originally called Freedom Financial Network. It's now called, you know, Achieve, is we really do want to lift people out of debt. And I think we're really proud of what we've delivered and we're proud of the the value and, and the consumers we've helped. I feel like we haven't made a big enough dent yet. We're still the tip of the iceberg. The debt problem in America is significant and a lot more people need our help. So for us, that's product expansion. That's pathing consumers through multiple products on the journey from heavily indebted negative cash flow to debt-free wealth building positive cash flow. So we've got a couple exciting product innovations coming soon on the ability to now take that consumer back to really financially thriving, excited for that to launch in the next year or two, and then continuing to deepen our impact in the underserved category of consumers who are struggling and striving to deal with debt. And hopefully Achieve is a household name. Hopefully we continue to be a great culture with a great team. And uh, we're all proud of who we work with and the mission that we serve. And I think it's just a continued execution on the core mission that we launched you know, in 2002. Okay, Brad, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much. It's a great story. Really glad we uh, we got to chat today and, and best of luck. Great to be with you, Peter. Thanks. If you like the show, please go ahead and give it a review on the podcast platform of your choice and be sure to tell your friends and colleagues about it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.